0: This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapters 2 and 3. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up this place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. But... The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, with painful labor, you will give birth to children. You will desire to control your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return.
1: This morning, we're beginning a new five-week sermon series that will take us up through Memorial Day, titled To Have and To Hold, obviously taken from the, the old vows on the subject of marriage. And before we get into it, I want to address a, a question, an objection, which is, why do this? Because there are a number of good reasons not to do it, not to talk about this subject. For one thing, uh, it's not applicable to everybody. So a number of folks in our congregation are married, a number aren't. So why talk about something that doesn't apply to everybody? Number two, it's a painful topic for a lot of people. So a lot of those who aren't married might like to be. A lot of people who are married might not like to be. Um, those who were married before and are no longer married might prefer to just not think about it. And even for those who are married right now, you know, there's a lot of people that it's a source of a lot of pain and, and suffering currently. So why why talk about such a painful subject? And I don't say that lightly. I know this series is going to be incredibly painful, more painful than the average series. And I'm very aware of that. So good reason not to talk about it. And the third reason not to talk about it is just that it's this very personal, very complicated subject upon which everybody already gets way more advice than they know what to do with. And so you, you might say, look, let, just leave it alone. You know, it's... Uh, each his own, and everybody's got to figure it out for themselves. Marriage isn't a one-size-fits-all deal, so for the church to to wade into this subject, you might do more harm than good. So those are three good reasons not to talk about it. We're going to spend five weeks talking about it regardless, um, and that's for, for a couple of other reasons. So the reasons we are going to talk about it are first, the Bible has a completely unique perspective on marriage totally different than anything else you'll see out there. And I would even go as far as saying this is a very bold, potentially offensive, controversial statement, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't think you can ever really understand marriage until you see it from the Bible's perspective. You can't understand marriage at all. Your understanding of marriage will always be deficient if you don't see it from Scripture's perspective because God is the one who invented marriage to begin with. Voltaire, the the French Enlightenment philosopher, said God created sex, priests created marriage. That's clever, but it's also false. It's just not true. Marriage is one of the few, very few, uh, human institutions that God actually did create. So most human institutions, he didn't. God didn't create the school, for example. He didn't create the corporation he didn't, he didn't invent the bicameral legislature. All those are great ideas. God doesn't take credit for any of them. He does take credit for marriage. He invented it. It wasn't, it wasn't Caveman Joe in 6000 BC. It was God. And that means that if you don't see it from his perspective, you're never going to understand how it really works. So that's the first reason we have to talk about it. And you kind of knew I was going to say that. But the second reason is actually more surprising. The second reason we have to talk about marriage is because not only is it the case that you will never understand marriage unless you see it from from God's perspective, God's lens, but it's also the case that you will never understand God unless you see him through the lens of marriage. Why? Because marriage is God's Artwork. God is the creator, meaning he is creative. He is an artist. He is the consummate artist. And the way that artists express themselves, the way they become known to the world, is through their artwork. Fellini, the, the great uh, Italian filmmaker, was once asked if his work was autobiographical. And he said, all art is autobiographical. He said, the, the pearl is the oyster's autobiography. It's a great line, and uh, it's especially true of God. The way we know him is through his art. And the Bible even explicitly says that marriage is one of the main windows we have into God's character. He says, I want you to know what I'm like, so here's marriage. Here's who I am. It's like trying to understand God without understanding marriage is like trying to understand Michelangelo without ever looking at this healing of the Sistine Chapel. This is one of his great works of art. And you will never get him. You'll never get God if you don't get marriage. So that's why we're going to spend five weeks talking about it. And next week in weeks two through five of the series, we're going to jump into some more practical stuff, some some things the Bible says about how to make marriage work, how to have a successful marriage. We're going to leave all that though for the subsequent weeks. And this morning we're just going to set the stage. We're just going to try to, to get the big picture try to get a sense of what is this thing? What is this thing, marriage? And why does it so often go so terribly wrong? So to to get that understanding, we have to go back to the place we were in most recently. We've we've been in these chapters already leading up to to Easter, these early chapters of the book of Genesis. But we're going to look at them through a different uh, focus, with a different focus, which is what do they say about relationships? Three things. Three things that this passage teaches us. About marriage. First, it shows us the plan for marriage. Second, it shows us the death of marriage. And then third, it, it hints at the resurrection of marriage. So the plan for marriage, the death of marriage, and the resurrection of marriage. Those will be the, the three sections this morning's sermon. We'll take them one at a time. So first, the plan for marriage. God invented this thing. What did he have in mind? What was the idea behind it? Let's go back to the passage. You can follow along up on the screen. Let me just reread a portion of what you just heard read already. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. The Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last. Is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So a couple of things that this section of the passage shows us about the plan for marriage, the intention, what it's supposed to be. It shows us that marriage is necessary, and it shows us that marriage is interlocking. So a couple minutes on both of those. First, necessary. Marriage is necessary. But by necessary, I don't mean you have to get married. You know, obviously, uh, some people choose to never get married. Uh, I think recently, like 2013 is the most recent data I've seen, and it's 5% of people by the end of their life have never been married. So, And that's a perfectly legitimate choice. But the way I grew up in the church, and I don't know about you, is kind of like... There's this weird verse in 1 uh, Corinthians where Paul says, well, it's better if you don't get married so that you can you know, serve the Lord more. I have no idea why he said that or what that verse means or why it's in the Bible. I do know that it contradicts everything else the Bible says because the, the main thing the Bible says from Genesis to Revelation is that marriage is this, this necessary default way of being human. It's not just like, a, well, if you, if you want to, it's, it's the design for, for what it means to be human for most people. So look, what, what it says is that when God says it is not good that the man should be alone, that line is absolutely astounding. It is not good that the man should be alone for a couple of reasons. One, Adam's not alone. He has God. He's in this perfect environment. He has a closer relationship to God than you and I will ever have on this earth. And yet God calls him alone. And then the second, God says, it's not good. It's not good. If you've been reading Genesis from, if you come to this line, if you come to this passage and you had been reading Genesis from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that phrase, not good, would absolutely jump off the page. Because from the beginning, God has been saying about every aspect of creation, "It's it's good. He saw it and said it's good. He saw it and said it's good. He saw it and said it's good. And then all of a sudden, something is not good. So what that means is either God made a mistake, you know, he he made Adam by himself, and then it was like, whoops, you know, he's he's lonely and we gotta come up with some sort of fix, some sort of patch. Or God did this on purpose. He inten- as an artistic move, he intentionally creates Adam first without Eve to underscore, to to draw attention to this need that Adam has for Eve. And when he sees Eve, he explodes into art, into poetry. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The first poem, the first song. You see uh, there that, that phrase, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That phrase at last actually is the first word of the poem in Hebrew, and it's a single word. At last, at last, my love has come along. My lonely days are over and life is like a song. And if you if you grew up with this idea that God is all we need, this directly contradicts that. Because he had God. He already had God, and yet he felt this deep and intense need and longing for Eve, which God was totally okay with because God set it up like that on purpose. So that's the first thing the passage shows us is that marriage is in a sense necessary it, by design. But the second thing the passage shows us is that marriage is, is meant to be interlocking. That's, that's what it is in its essence. It's, it's this interlocking union. So we, we already looked at the phrase, it's not good that the man should be alone. The next phrase is, I will make him a helper fit for him. a Helper fit for him. That, that word fit is notoriously difficult to translate. So some translations will say, I'll make him a helper suitable For him, the old uh, King James, if you remember this, is I'll make him a helper meet for him. So uh, a help meet or a a help mate, it became kind of changed to. What does this word mean? Fit, suitable, meet. In the Hebrew, it's a combination of two different roots, like and opposite. I will make him a helper like opposite him. say like opposite, which is it? Make up your mind. can't be both. But it can be both. It can be both if you're talking about something or someone that's been specifically designed to interlock. So two pieces of a puzzle, they, they have to be different to interlock, but they, they have to be perfectly different. They have to be cut of the same substance, but then they have to be designed to interlock. And that's what marriage is. And I'm not obviously just talking anatomically, physically. You know, it says the two shall become one flesh. So the two bodies interlock But it's a lot more than that. Becoming one flesh is becoming one person, becoming one soul. And so it applies on a personality level too. You know, you talk about the cliche opposites attract. Well, there's a reason for that because that's in its essence what marriage is. It's these two opposite personalities, two opposite ways of viewing the world, coming and interlocking. If you have two people that are exactly the same, You know, the same personality, same likes, same dislikes. It's hard for that to be a a marriage in the true sense of the word. As an example, if you have two people that sing the exact same note of music or the exact same line of music in unison, it's not going to sound good. At best, it's going to be boring. At worst, it's going to really grate on your ears because it's almost impossible to sing in unison. And so they're, they're going to be just a little bit off, and it's going to be out of tune. However, if you have two people that sing two lines of music that were perfectly designed to be different, not just different all over the place, but designed to interlock harmony, then what happens is those two pitches lock in, and I, I, don't, I'm, I don't mean uh, metaphorically, I mean physically. You remember this from, from physics class. The sound waves actually lock together in real space and time, and those two notes then create, produce, procreate all these additional pitches that weren't there before, as if by magic, and it becomes infinitely rich and deep and complex, just because you have two notes that were perfectly designed to interlock. That's what makes music music, and that's what makes marriage marriage. And Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden had it. They had it. They experienced this perfect interlocking union. And what it says is, so they became one flesh, two people becoming one. It says they were naked but unashamed. One of the most arresting lines in all of Scripture. They were naked but unashamed. What is that? It's only what everybody wants. It's only what everybody is spending their entire lives seeking is to be seen totally, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, to be totally seen by another person. From top of your head to the tips of your toes, from your skin to your soul, inside and out, known and seen, and loved, embraced, adored, admired for who you are. That's what everybody wants. And they had it. Adam and Eve had that, naked but unashamed. They had it, but they lost it. So that takes us to the second section of the sermon, the death of marriage. First, the plan for marriage. That's what it was supposed to be. But Second, the death of marriage. How does marriage die? And what this passage shows us with devastating effectiveness is the unraveling of a relationship once sin enters into the picture. What's interesting is that Uh, once they sin, sin hits marriage first and it hits marriage hardest. Sin goes after marriage. So it's not that you you just happen to incidentally feel the effects of sin in your marriage. Marriage is sin's first target. Before I got married, I, I knew I was a sinner. Now that I've been married 10 years, I know I am a sinner. And if I forget, Brittany will be quick to tell me. And... It's in relationships. It's in relationships that we feel the effects of sin because sin is primarily, it's not primarily a legal thing. It's not primarily a moral thing. Sin is primarily a relational thing, and so it's in relationships that we feel the effects of sin. What sort of effects? This passage shows us three effects of sin that I want us to to look at. We don't have time to go into depth on, on each of them, but I just want to at least run through them. So we hide, we blame, and we compete. First, we hide. The first thing this, the passage shows us is that now, because of sin, we're all hiders. One of the most common complaints that women have about their marriages is that their husbands do not reveal themselves, So they don't open up, that they don't talk about how they're, they're feeling or what they're really thinking. They're, they're hiding and that's how it's been ever since the beginning. That's what the passage shows us, and that's what sin does. The first thing sin makes us do is hide. As soon as they eat the fruit, they they sow loincloths for, for themselves. They, they cover up with fig leaves. We said a second ago that uh, one of the most arresting lines in the whole Bible is this line, uh, they were naked and unashamed. Well, you have its mirror image, just a paragraph later, that's equally arresting but in a heartbreaking way way, which is they knew they were naked. They knew they were naked, self-consciousness, and they cover up. So what is it about sin that makes us hide? Well, it does it in a lot of different ways. So we talked a few weeks ago about sin in its essence is a lack of trust. It's saying to God, I can't trust you. Well, once you stop trusting, then if you can't trust God, you certainly can't trust your spouse. You know, there's too much sensitive information. And then sin makes the other person do things that just confirm that suspicion. You know, I don't know if you've ever had this experience of sharing something with your spouse or with a close friend that felt very personal and vulnerable to you. And then at some later point, they, they throw it back in your face. They use it against you or they share it with somebody that they shouldn't have. And it just makes you want to hide all the more. And the other aspect of it is just that once you start, once you say, I can't trust God, so I'm not going to follow God's commands, well, then all of a sudden you're doing all sorts of things that you know you shouldn't be doing. And there's shame in that. There's shame in that, and you don't want the other person to see. You don't want your spouse to know what you're really like. And so you project. That's the first way that, that sin kills marriage, as it brings this hiding dynamic into it. The second thing is the, the blaming. And this is one of the most commonly observed aspects of the passage, but still worth mentioning, which is, this is the first thing they do. God comes to them and says, what happened? And Adam knows exactly what to say. The woman, the, the, the woman you gave me, God. So it looks like the two of you are the problem here, because she was your idea. So uh, take her, you know, take, take her and give me another wife, and that should, that should fix everything. And that's what we do now. We we blame. We in marriage we blame. If so if you're if you're not connecting, you know, if if you've lost the spark, well whose fault is it? If something really bad goes wrong, it goes you know happens, if something bad happens to one of your kids, if something's going wrong with one of your kids, whose fault is it? If you're in this really terrible fight, whose fault is it? If you can't find your keys, whose fault is it? You know, I don't know about you, but for me it's Always, my first thought is always, where did you put my keys? Where did you put my keys? Why are you acting this way? Why are you feeling this way? Why are you messing everything up all the time? That's the way sinners approach relationships. We're blamers now. We hide, we blame. And the last thing that the passage shows us is that because of sin, now we're going to be locked in this perpetual competition, this struggle. So what God says to Eve after after the fall, as he says, your desire will be to control your husband, but he will rule over you. In other words, you're always going to be trying to, to take control and take first place, but because he's physically stronger, he's always going to be pushing you back down. And again, this isn't like a, a description of the way God wanted things to be. This is a description of the way relationships are going to be now that sin has entered into the picture. It's this prophecy of unending conflict between the genders. So as a historical matter, it's obviously the case that this has turned out to be accurate. Uh, Men have oppressed and dominated women for all of recorded history through their physical strength. Uh, And our culture readily acknowledges that, talks about it all the time, condemns it as evil and tries to to remedy it. And on that point, the Bible and our culture are in perfect alignment. The Bible says, yes, this is evil. It wasn't supposed to be this way. So that's where our culture and the Bible disagree or agree. Where, Where the culture and the Bible disagree is that the Bible seems to suggest that women aren't totally innocent in this arrangement. Now, at first, you think of examples where women totally are innocent, and so you, know, you you want to tread carefully because when you're thinking of domestic violence or rape or uh, sex trafficking, obviously women are, are totally innocent. Men, it's, it's all on men, and to suggest otherwise is really sick. But in other instances, in other ways, in other examples, what the Bible is saying is it's not just that men are going to exploit women's weaknesses. It's also that women are going to try to exploit men's weaknesses. So just as men exploit women's physical weaknesses and try to dominate, women will try to exploit men's weaknesses in other areas, their, their pride or their emotional weaknesses or their lust or whatever it is, in an attempt to gain the upper hand. So, And moving away from society, kind of big picture for a second, I think that we can all agree... That that's that's true on an individual level, that this type of power struggle happens on an individual level. So I said a second ago that one of the most common complaints that women have about their husbands is this hiding and this not revealing. To take the other side, one of the most common complaints that, that men have about their wives is that their wives are trying to control them, that their wives are trying to, to fix them. And men resent that. They really resent it, and they react really strongly against it and it's this prophecy from Genesis. God says you're going to try to control your husband and he's going to fight back. He's going to rule over you. This competition, this constant struggle. And that's what what marriage looks like now that sin has entered in. Hiding and blaming and competing and struggling and we just do it over and over and over again. Hide and blame and compete and hide and blame and compete and sin wraps it's coils tighter and tighter around marriage, and the poison seeps down deeper and deeper, squeezing the life out of marriage. God created this beautiful, breathtakingly beautiful thing, but there was a snake in the garden, and marriage dies. So that now, if 50% of all marriages end in divorce, everybody knows that. But a, a, a huge chunk, a huge chunk of the other 50% are marked by either deep disappointment or just intense suffering. There is no hell like marital hell. There is no pain like the pain that comes in, in marriage. Most people, the deepest suffering they ever experience, will be within their marriage. That's what it's like now. So that most of the people growing up today, they say, I don't even want to touch that. I don't even want to get married because it's, it's so awful. Who would want to bring that in to their life? And the question is, is, is that how it ends? Does it have to stay that way? Does the serpent win with marriage is dead? The answer is no, and that takes us to the, the last section of the sermon. So third and finally this morning, the resurrection of marriage the resurrection of marriage. And like I said the passage just hints at this, doesn't go into it in depth. And this will be reviewed for those of you who were here the, the two weeks before Easter because we've already been talking about this, but I want to make sure to repeat it for those of you who are new because it's it's really important. What it says at the end of the passage where there's this curse, God says uh, the, the serpent's now going to be perpetually biting at your heel, you know, in other words sin's going to dog you and dog your marriage all the days of your life. But then there's this other part of the prophecy where it says, one day a son of Adam will come and crush the serpent's head. And what we said a few weeks ago is that that son of Adam is none other than Jesus. Uh, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. He's saying this is the the new Adam. That's what Paul calls him. The new Adam. The second Adam. The anti-Adam. Because Jesus does the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve do. He trusts God all the way to the end. He doesn't hide Instead, he allows himself to be exposed, naked, hung up on the cross. He doesn't blame. Instead, he, he does the opposite. He takes our blame upon himself. He, he absorbs the blame that we all deserved, and he doesn't compete. Philippians 2 says he didn't grasp to take the top spot. He didn't cling to his equality with God. Instead, he, he took the lowest spot. He laid his life down, taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross, And like we've been saying for the last few weeks, the reason he does that is to break the power of sin, to break the spell. Because somebody's going to have to do that. Somebody's going to have to break this spell. This chain is what Paul calls it. He says, before Christ, we're all slaves to sin. And if you've ever talked to an addict, that's, that's what addiction is. It's slavery. You're, you're bound. You can't get away from it. Well, all of us are addicts in our marriages. We're all trapped in these patterns, and you want to stop, but you can't. Husbands want to stop keeping secrets from their wives, but, but they can't seem to. Wives want to stop trying to control their husbands, but they can't seem to. We want to stop blaming each other, but we can't. We're, we're trapped, we're enslaved, we're, we're in chains. And Paul says, before Christ, there was no hope. But after Christ, after Christ breaks the spell of sin and breaks the power of Satan, then there is. There's, there's a chance to break free from sin, to break out of these patterns and break out of these addictions and for marriage to be resurrected. And what that is is a miracle. You know, for, for a dead marriage to come back to life, that's going to take supernatural power. We talked last week about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I think there can be this sense of, well, why does that matter? Okay, so you're saying Jesus rose from the dead uh, 2,000 years ago. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Why, Why does that affect my life tomorrow one way or the other? The answer is because if God couldn't raise Jesus from the dead, then what makes you think he can raise your marriage from the dead? But on the other hand, if Jesus did come back to life, then your marriage can come back to life by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's an issue of power, and I have seen it happen. I've seen miracles happen, and it is one of the best parts of my job, seeing hearts that are hard and closed and cold become soft and warm and open, and seeing joy replace suffering, seeing Kids that should have been growing up in two separate houses, splaying time between two houses, and being deeply confused and scarred by watching love die, being deeply confused and scarred by watching their parents go and date other people and sleep with other people and then eventually marry other people, seeing none of that happen because the marriage comes back to life and those kids grow up in one house with their mom and their dad. It happens. I've seen it happen. I've seen marriages resurrected from the dead. But it only happens through Christ. It only happens through the power of the resurrection. And it also only happens through the way of the cross. Because the, the main New Testament passage about marriage in Ephesians 5, Paul says the only chance you have to make this work is if you submit to one another, if you love one another if you serve one another with the same radical selflessness that Christ did this for you on the cross. But if you haven't seen him do it for you, then there's no chance you're going to be able to do it for anybody else. So that's what we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks, how to get marriage back, how to get it back to what God intended it to be, how to bring it back from the dead, how to rescue it by following the way, of the cross. It's never going to be perfect. Nothing is ever going to be exactly like God meant it to be until he remakes the world. But through Christ, we can, we can get close, we can approximate it, and even that dim reflection of what it was supposed to be is still pretty majestic. Let's pray. Father, you know the pain that's in this room this morning, some of it's pain from the past about mistakes that have been made or relationships that have gone wrong, some of it's pain that's that's very current and very present, suffering in, in marriages going on right now, this last week, this morning even. And some of it's anxiety about the future, about will I ever get married and why am I still alone and God, why are you letting this happen? Whatever the location of our pain in time or in space, I ask this morning that you would come and before anything else that you would just comfort and heal us and let us know that you care and that you see And then after that, I I pray that you'd give us a vision. A vision for what marriage was supposed to be originally, a vision for what it still could be through your power. That you'd show us how, and that through your spirit, you'd, you'd teach us how to get marriage back again. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.